Uh, the scripture reading today is Psalm 42 and 43. If you're using the blue um, pew Bible, it is on page 469. Please stand in honor of God's word. On page 469, you'll find the beginning of Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. I'm definitely very grateful we had a chance to hear from Nancy, uh, one of the members that we've sent out from this church, to hear her testimony and the work that she's doing for the Lord. And if you want an opportunity to hear more about um, what God's been doing in her life and how he's been using her, there is an opportunity to hear her share this afternoon at 1245 in Trailer 5. It's the big trailer, a uh, big room of the trailer on your right when you leave out the back. I do encourage all of you to join us there and you'll hear more of what's been going on in her ministry. So I do want to let you know about that opportunity. Um, let's pray again as we go into God's Word. 
Father, I thank you so much for your word and how it knows where we are at. It knows how we feel. It identifies with not just our joys, but our pain. And I thank you, Lord, that this word, I'm sure, is timely for many of your people here this morning. So minister to us. Comfort us. Bring your peace upon us. All for your namesake, for your glory, for the good of your people. In the great name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder if you noticed that Psalm 42 introduces book two of the Psalms. If you're looking at the Bible right now, you'll notice that this is the start of a new section. Maybe you didn't know that. Maybe you didn't know that there are five books in the Psalter. Now, it's debatable whether those five divisions are inspired by God, like the contents of the individual 150 Psalms. But we know from early on that the Jewish rabbis broke up the Psalter into these five books, most likely as a reflection of the five books of the Torah, the Pentateuch, the the five books of Moses. They saw the Torah, the law, as God's five-fold word to his people, and the Psalms were essentially the people's five-fold response back to the Lord. This is how they respond to their God. And so that's why the Psalter has been used all these years as the songbook of God's people. That means that the Psalms are not just to be read devotionally in your personal quiet times. The Psalms are meant to be sung corporately as a responsive prayer to the Lord. They give words. They give voice to the people of God. And they factor in a whole slew of emotions. In a worship service like this one, there could be a hundred different emotions being felt by the people in this room right now. And you yourself might feel differently this Sunday than you did last Sunday, and you might show up next week in an entirely different emotional state. And so that's why there are different kinds of psalms within the Psalter that express a whole wide range of emotions. You've got the typical hymns of praise and thanksgiving that focus on God's holy attributes, that focus on his mighty works on behalf of his people. And those hymns, they express joy, they express confidence in God. But then, then you have songs of lament, Psalms that are birthed out of pain and anguish. I know we're not as familiar with them, even though they're actually more prevalent in the Psalter than the hymns of praise. It's probably because these songs of lament, they're just not as catchy, right? I mean, when you come to a service and you sing a song based on a psalm, you're expecting something like, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. You're not expecting to sing Psalm 88. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions of dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your ways. I I haven't sung that one lately. I don't think Chris Tomlin has has gotten to that, that psalm yet. But you know, that's 
That's how many worshipers feel on any given Sunday. And, and that's, I'm not surprised if that's how some of you feel right now. And that's why we need these kinds of songs of lament. We need to give a voice to our grief. We need words to express our feelings of doubt, our feelings of despair. And that, my friends, is why I chose Psalms 42 and 43 as our text for this morning. Now, the reason we're covering two psalms is because these two are most likely actually one. Uh, We don't know why or when they got split into two, but most commentators would postulate that this was actually one psalm because of the repeating stanza that you're going to find in chapter 40, uh, Psalm 42, verse 5, and then you see at the very end in verse 11, and look in Psalm 43, verse 5, there's this repeating refrain, and let me read that to you. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So you see that repeated. And as you can see in this refrain, the psalmist is dealing just in this one verse with a whole, with a whole range of emotions, and he feels all of it so deeply. And I, I really believe that it's going to resonate with many of you this morning. He is going to give you words for those feelings of yours. And for those of you who, you know, this morning you're sitting here, you're hearing this psalm, and and you're not really identifying with what this psalmist is going through, it's not really where you're at, I think you should still listen, you should still learn, and better equip yourself to know how to better care for those who are in your life in the same spiritual condition as our psalmist. And so there's a word here for all of us this morning. I've broken this message down into three parts. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin. You'll see an outline. First, we're going to diagnose this spiritual condition, help you better detect it in your own life. Second, we're going to identify the causes of this condition as found in our text. And then third, we're going to prescribe a cure. A very simple outline, the condition, the causes, the cure. So what's the spiritual condition that we are dealing with here in our psalm? What's, what's plaguing our psalmist? Well, it goes by different names. Some call it spiritual dryness or spiritual deadness. It's where your devotional life just feels dry. It feels like it's died. It's where your worship life feels like it's lacking in fervor. It's, it's missing its joy. Others would describe it as something more severe than that. They would call it spiritual desertion, spiritual abandonment. It's where they feel like they've, they've lost God in a sense. They've lost a feeling sense of God's presence in their lives. He feels distant. It's like he's gone silent on them. It's like God has deserted you and just left you in your pain to figure things out on your own. The psalmist uses a metaphor to describe this condition for us in verse 1. Look there again. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. And then immediately he explains the metaphor in verse 2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? 
So the psalmist is comparing himself to a panting deer, a thirsting deer, and God in this metaphor is like a dry riverbed. Right? He, he's looking to God for satisfaction. As the deer thirsts for living waters, so this psalmist is thirsting for the living God, but God is nowhere to be found. He has no feeling sense of God's presence in his life. And that's why he has to ask at the end of verse 2, when shall I appear, I come and appear before God? And that's why, if you look later on in verse 9, he's complaining that, that he thinks God has forgotten him. And if you turn over to uh, Psalm 43, verse 2, he feels like God has rejected him. So he can't feel God. He feels like God has forgotten him. He feels like God has rejected him. Now note here, though, that all the while, the psalmist still believes in God. He doesn't deny God's existence. He just can't feel God's presence. Can you identify with that? Do you know what this psalmist is feeling? Like, like maybe for you, there was a time when your devotions were were rich, and, and they were life-giving, and you had assurances of his love. You knew his joy, and when you worshiped him, his joy filled your heart. But now, well, now, your times with the Lord, they feel dry, they're inconsistent. Your prayers feel mechanical. Worship is joyless. Doubt has crept in and laid claim to your heart. I mean, you still believe in God, you're not an atheist, but for all intents and purposes, you're living like one. Living like God doesn't really exist because he's not there. Or at least you don't sense him in your life anymore. And that's why, that's probably why you can resonate with this thrice repeated refrain in our psalm. You know from experience what it means to feel downcast in your soul. That's the condition that's being dealt with here in our psalm. You can call it spiritual dryness, spiritual deadness, spiritual darkness, spiritual desertion, or spiritual depression. Those are all fitting descriptions. And for our sake, I'm going to stick with spiritual depression, mainly because I was rereading a really good book by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones called Spiritual Depression, and I'm going to refer to that book later. But because we're using the word depression, I need to make a qualification. Like Lloyd-Jones was a doctor, like a medical doctor, not just you know, with a PhD. He, he was a doctor, and he practiced medicine before he became a preacher. And so he knows a thing or two about clinical depression. And, and both spiritual and clinical depression are definitely related, but friends, they are different. There is a distinction. You can experience one without the other. And so I, I want you to hear that so that none of you assume that this psalm has nothing to do with you personally just because you don't show any signs of clinical depression. All of us, friends, all of us are susceptible to the condition being described here in our psalm. Now, Based on this text, there are three things we can say about this condition. First, if you've gone through this experience, you know 
oh, you know that, that spiritual depression hurts you. It hurts you. And by that, it, it would certainly include emotional pain, but spiritual depression has a physical manifestation. We are talking about physical pain, physical effects. Just look with me in verse 10. The psalmist describes the pain that he feels when others taunt him about the absence of God in his life. And he says that it feels like a deadly wound in my bones. Other translations describe it as a shattering or a crushing of bones. So there is a bone-crushing pain associated with spiritual depression. It might originate from the mind, but friends, it is felt in the body. If you look at verse 3, it says the psalmist has experienced a loss of appetite. He hasn't been eating right. My tears have been my food day and night. Constant weeping is taking over his life. He's forgetting to eat. He's losing his appetite. He's probably losing productivity because his weeping is stretching from day to night. And so the point here is to recognize that when spiritual darkness descends and you can't sense God's love or his presence anymore, the effects on you are more than just spiritual and emotional. They can very well be physical. It hurts you. Second, spiritual depression haunts you. What I mean is that it can come and go. The darkness can lift and hope feels renewed, but as quickly as it lifts, the darkness can descend over your soul again. Did you notice this up and down of emotions within the psalm as it was read? The psalm seems to fade and rise and fade and rise from despair to hope, back to despair, and then hope again. And what this implies is that this condition is, is typically not a one-time experience where some sort of conversion moment or some kind of second blessing is the cure-all. This feeling of spiritual deadness can come and go, and it can happen to the maturest of believers. Just think of Elijah. After his confrontation with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, he's this mighty man of God who just performed this mighty feat for the Lord. But in 1 Kings 19, he is curled up under a broom tree asking to die. Or think of John the Baptist, who is not so confident anymore that Jesus is the Christ as doubt creeps up into him as he is stuck in Herod's prison. I mean, just some of, some of my heroes of the faith, they struggled with spiritual depression. I'm thinking of men like Martin Luther, David Brannard, William Cowper, Charles Spurgeon. The point is that you mustn't assume that this condition only afflicts non-Christians or weak Christians. And don't assume that there's a permanent fix. Spiritual oppression can afflict any believer, and it might be something that haunts you, that comes and goes over a lengthy season of your life, or maybe even over the entirety of your life. Spiritual depression hurts you, haunts you. Third, spiritual depression overwhelms you. It incapacitates you. It feels like you're drowning in sorrow. 
But unlike in clinical depression, the underlying source of your sorrow is not a chemical imbalance. It's not your circumstances. It's not words or actions from others. In spiritual depression, the overwhelming, drowning sense of sorrow comes from God. Or more accurately, it comes from God's removal of his comforting presence. Just look at at, at how the psalmist describes his grief in verse 7. Look in verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. And those sound like beautiful song lyrics. And we sing them in our songs of praise. But the psalmist is saying that it feels like these waterfalls are going to crush him. These pounding waves are engulfing him. And whose waterfalls? And whose who's breakers and waves is it? It's God's. It's God's waterfalls. It's his breakers and waves overwhelming the psalmist. God, in his sovereign wisdom, according to his sovereign will, has removed from the psalmist the grace of his comforting presence. And if you're suffering in this condition, he means that he has done the same for you. In his sovereign wisdom and will, he has removed from you his comforting presence. And only until you recognize that only until you recognize it's his waterfalls and it's his breakers and waves drowning you, only then will you learn to recognize the lifeline that he has thrown you. The psalmist saw it. He recognized it. He speaks of this lifeline in verse 8. As he feels like he's drowning in his grief, he recognizes God's steadfast love. You see that in verse 8? God's hesed. God's covenantal love, his unconditional commitment to his people. The psalmist grabs onto that lifeline and he clings to it as his only hope. We're going to come back to that. We're we're going to come back to this steadfast love. What I want you to see is this condition that he's in. We've described this condition that's plaguing the psalmist as spiritual depression And now now we're ready to consider some possible causes. The causes, of course, are multifaceted since humans are complex creatures made up of body, mind, and soul. And so I don't imagine exhausting the entire list of causes in just one sermon. But I do want to identify three that are found for us in our psalm. First, first cause. Spiritual depression can be caused by a separation from the corporate worship of God, caused by a separation from the corporate worship of God. Did you notice how the psalmist is grieving the fact that he's separated, not just from God, but from the temple of God that's situated in Jerusalem? Look at verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, the temple with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. And so what the, the psalmist thirsts for 
is to worship God, and not just in his private devotions, but in the company of the worshiping community. He longs to return to the temple. He makes it clear that he's thinking about the temple when he speaks in Psalm 43, verses 3 to 4, about God's holy hill, about God's altar. He wants to be in the temple. The header of this psalm, if you look in the very beginning, it says this is a song of the sons of Korah. And if you're not aware of who those are, those were the individuals responsible for temple music. They were the musicians. They were the worship team of the temple. Which then makes sense that the psalmist then it says in verse 4 that he used to lead others in glad shouts. He used to lead others in songs of praise. This is explaining why he is so grieved to now be cut off from the house of God. If you look in verse 6, it says that he's writing this psalm from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Uh, that would basically, if, you, if, if you're looking at this geographically, that would place him in a region north of Galilee. And so he is some distance from Jerusalem. Perhaps he's been exiled there by, by a, a nation that had attacked Jerusalem and carried off captives. But regardless of what he's doing there, whether it was by his own doing or someone did it to him, he has been separated from the temple. And the, and, and the point is that his absence from the corporate worship of God has contributed to his condition. It's obvious the psalmist is downcast. He's longing to be in God's presence again. But my point is that he's not longing. Did you notice he's not longing to do a quiet time? Right? He's not panting for a personal devotion. No, he is longing and panting for corporate worship. That is where he's going to meet God. Now, having said that, let's be clear. God is not limited to the temple. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He, he meets with us mercifully on a personal and intimate level in our prayers, in our personal times, in the Word. But friends, in both the Old and the New Testament, God uniquely manifests himself to his people in corporate worship in ways that he does not in our personal devotions. When the people of God assemble to sing together, to confess sins together, to pray together, to listen to God's word together as it's read and preached, to witness baptisms and the share of the Lord's Supper together, when we do these things together, God is among us and ministering to us in unique ways that you cannot replicate in private worship. I'm getting ahead of myself, but what this means for us is that one of the remedies for a downcast soul is to make it a priority to regularly worship with the people of God. If you're feeling dry, if you're feeling distant from God, friends, this right now is the best place for you to be. If you took a lump of coal that was burning on a pile, and if you separate it from the other pieces, you know 
Very soon, it's going to cool off, and it's going to lose all of its heat. And that is probably how many of you feel spiritually. Because for whatever reason, you've been separated from the worshiping community for far too long. Well, thank God that he's brought you here this morning. This is exactly where you need to be. You know, you know that once you throw that lump back into the burning pile, you can be sure it is going to light and it's going to burn on its own once again. And that is what you can look forward to if you keep worshiping regularly with the people of God. Second, another cause. Another cause of spiritual depression Separation from the worship community. Second, the antagonization from worldly people. Spiritual depression can be caused by the antagonization from worldly people. The psalmist makes it clear that he's being taunted. If you look in verse 3, look in verse 10, his adversaries are taunting him all day long, sarcastically asking him, hey, where's your God? Where's your God? Where's this all loving, almighty God that you claim to serve. If he loves you so, then why would he leave you high and dry? Why won't he return to you? Where's your God? These taunts, they're getting to the psalmist and they're exacerbating his sense of hopelessness. And perhaps maybe you feel the same. Maybe you have people in your life who are not helping in the way that they speak flippantly and sarcastically about God. And they're telling you, just get over it. Get, get over your spiritual depression by just getting over religion. Get over God. Just move on. You'll feel better about yourself. Now granted, you know, there are some people trying to help and, and they're not trying to antagonize you. They're honestly trying to help your downcast soul, but I would still categorize them as worldly people in that their advice to you is worldly. They're not going to point you to God. They're not going to tell you to put your hope in Him. They're going to tell you if you want a cure for your downcast soul, then you have to take a look at yourself in the mirror. Believe in yourself. Look to yourself. You'll find the answers in yourself. Well, this is why, if you're in this condition, this is why you especially need to be in community with the people of God. This is why you need to join a church. Because when you join a church, you are committing yourself to fellow church members who are then committing themselves to speak truth into your life. Not to question where God is, but to point you to him and to remind you you need to hope in him. That's what church members are for. Church members, that's what we are here for, to speak into each other's lives, to point each other to God, to hope in God. Third, another cause of spiritual depression are the accusations from spiritual enemies. Accusations from spiritual enemies. Worldly people might antagonize you, but spiritual enemies will accuse you. And by that, I primarily do have Satan in mind. I mean, that is what his name means. Satan means the accuser. When you're feeling distant or deserted by God, 
Satan is going to taunt you. He's going to accuse you. He's going to tell you that you are not worthy to appear before God. He is going to take that guilt of yours. He's going to take your shame, and he is going to beat you up with it. And that would explain why the psalmist is asking God in Psalm 43, verse 1, to vindicate him, to justify him, to defend his cause. But let's, let's be clear here. I want you to, to hear me when I say this, that, that not every case of spiritual dryness or depression is triggered by some kind of sin that we're struggling with. Like I said, the causes are multifaceted, and this condition can affect the maturest of Christians. But, friends, if sin is involved, if unrepentant sin in your life is triggering the condition you're in, then our despair escalates because the devil won't let up. He will keep piling on the accusation. So what's the cure? What's the cure for this spiritual condition that we're describing? We've examined the condition. We've considered three causes. Now what's the cure for spiritual depression? Well, there are three things that I see the psalmist doing here. Remembering, praying, and preaching. First, notice how he's remembering. In verse 4, he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul. What things? What things is he remembering? Well, he says he remembers those sweet times of corporate worship when God felt so real to him, when God felt so near to him. He brought to mind those memories. So what about you? What do you need to remember? Maybe you need to recall a time in your life when worship was life-giving, when you did have a feeling sense of God's presence in your life. Remember those things. Bring back those moments to your mind. And the point is not simply for you to reminisce in the past, but to let those memories of God's nearness rejuvenate your faith. Look, look at verse 6. Look at the psalmist's reasoning in verse 6. You know, because he's downcast, because he feels deserted, therefore he concludes that God is irrelevant and he turns to others, he turns to himself, no, that's not what it says. It says, my soul is downcast, is cast down within me. Therefore, because I'm feeling so downcast, I remember you. This, my friends, is why so much of what we do in corporate worship is simply to remember. We're not trying, really, to come up with anything new in our service we're just trying to remember the old, old story. We're retelling it to ourselves and to our children because we are all so prone to forget. So in our songs, in our sermons, especially in the supper, we are bringing to remembrance the faithfulness of God. We are trying to remember his steadfast love to us in the past, to strengthen our faith for today and for our hope for tomorrow. We're trying to remember. Remembering is so key. Second, notice how the psalmist is praying. He's praying. God feels distant to him. It feels like God has deserted him and forgotten him and rejected him. But here he is 
still praying to the God who feels distant. He's pleading to the God who he feels has abandoned him. If that makes no sense to you, if you haven't developed that discipline of being able to pray to God when you can't feel God, then you're not going to get very deep in your relationship with him. If you're only driven by emotions, then spiritual depression is going to drive you even further away from the practice of prayer. One aspect of growing in spiritual maturity is to learn how to pray even when you feel spiritually dry or depressed. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9, how the psalmist, he didn't just go and tell other people how he feels like God has forgotten him. In verse 9, he actually says that to God. Why have you forgotten me? He's praying that. Have you ever prayed like that? Have you ever expressed your doubts and frustrations about God to God like that? I mean, some of you aren't even sure if you're allowed to do that. Well, the psalmist is giving you permission to pray like that. But notice how, how he addresses that prayer in verse 9 to God, you see it? His rock. And so, it is a raw prayer, right? There, there are some raw emotions there, but he's still praying based on his remembrance that God is a rock. Right now, the psalmist feels overwhelmed by God's breakers, by God's waves. He feels like he's drowning, but he still remembers that God is his rock. And so he knows he can ride out that storm by clinging to his rock and holding tight to the lifeline of his steadfast love. And that leads us to our final cure. Third, notice how the psalmist is preaching to himself. He's remembering, he's praying, but now we see him preaching to himself. Look back, look back to that common refrain that starts in verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Notice, he is speaking to himself. He's having like a whole conversation here, right? Like he's questioning himself. He's telling himself to hope in God, to believe that he will return to the temple to praise the God of his salvation. Friends, this idea of preaching to yourself is not some form of psychological babble. Speaking to yourself, is, is, it's not a psychiatric problem of having split personalities. Now, this is a spiritual discipline here, one that many Christians overlook. If you don't know what it means to speak to yourself, to preach to your own soul, then I can imagine why the darkness never seems to lift. You're spending far too much time listening to yourself and letting that voice influence you rather than speaking to yourself and pointing your soul to its hope in God. I learned this from Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression. In his chapter on Psalm 42, he writes this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? 
He says that's the main trouble with spiritual depression. We allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. His point is that we get too self-absorbed. And if we continue to neglect God's word, if we pull away from God's people, we end up in an echo chamber of self-reinforcing thoughts and feelings. And his point is that sometimes we need to stop listening to that voice in our head and speak back to it words of hope. That's what it means to preach the gospel to yourself. That's what the psalmist is doing. He's saying, listen, soul, why are you downcast? Why are you in turmoil? Hope in God. You're going to see the temple again. You're going to praise him with a company of saints again. You're going to get a chance to be in the presence of God again. Hope in him. Remember, remember for Old Testament saints, the temple represented the very presence of God. That's why it was so important for the psalmist to be in the temple. But friends, as we continue reading from the Old Testament on into the New, we see Jesus arriving on the scene, claiming to be many things, one of them being the new temple. He points to the old temple and he says, this thing is coming down. This thing is coming down. And he refers to himself as the new temple of God. He's the new meeting place if you want to meet with God. In him, Scripture says, the whole fullness of God dwells bodily. If you want to appear before God, you don't go to a building or a place anymore. You go to a person. You go to the Son of God. And so, friends, what this means is that we can join the psalmist in this song by directing our souls to the new temple to Christ. So we can preach to ourselves something like this. You, you say to yourself, listen, soul, why are you downcast? Why are you in turmoil? Hope in God. If you want to appear before him, if you want the sense of God's presence in your life again, go to the new temple. You'll always find God in the person of the Son. So listen, if you're dealing with spiritual depression right now, I'm sure you have a lot of voices coming at you, and I'm not surprised if the loudest and clearest of those voices are telling you that you're not worthy of that, that you're not worthy to appear before God. Friend, the first step to get that dark cloud to lift over you, to lift over your soul, is to admit that that voice is right. You're not worthy in and of yourself. You have to acknowledge your sinfulness. You have to confess your unrighteousness. Because the hope of the gospel is what you need to cling to, not yourself. And the hope of the gospel is that God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is exactly why he sent the Son of God. In Psalm 43, verse 3, you look there. Verse 3, the psalmist is asking God to send out your light and your truth. 
in order to lead him back to the holy hill, back to the temple, back to his presence. Well, the good news, friends, is that God has ultimately answered that prayer by sending the light and the truth in the person of his son. If guilt and shame are weighing heavy on you, like a thick cloud blocking out the light, like a thick blanket cutting off your air, then put your hope in the Son of God. In the Son of God. It's His steadfast love that is going to be your lifeline. It's Jesus who will vindicate you. Jesus who will justify you by his blood and righteousness. Jesus who will make you worthy to appear before God. It was Jesus who endured the ultimate thirst as he hung there on the cross, panting for God. It was Jesus who experienced the ultimate desertion as he was forsaken by the Father. He truly was forgotten and rejected. And he did that. He did all of that for sinners like us so that we would never thirst, so that we would never be forgotten and never be forsaken. He did that for those who admit that we are not worthy in ourselves, but who believe that in Christ we are counted worthy to appear before God. I'm not going to promise that if you trust in Jesus, that suddenly your spiritual depression will be cured and that it'll suddenly be a thing of the past, never to haunt you again. I'm, I'm not going to say that. But I am going to say that Jesus secures our eternal hope that the darkness will not last forever that we will rise one day in Christ and once again praise our God, the God of our salvation. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that your word continues right now to minister to your people, to bring sweet comfort to them. Holy Spirit, bring a comforting word, speaking it, to the hearts of your children, that they may know that God is near. God is with us. God is for us. God loves us. All because of Jesus Christ. What he has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. Because of our union with him by faith. Comfort us with this gospel truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.